2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 1. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaim, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you, God knows I do. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder. For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Let's say uh, next weekend you're going to have a garage sale. And uh, just, for example, let's say you've got um, a box of old dishes, some old glassware, cardboard box of it. And uh, somebody comes and looks at the box, rummages through it and says, I'd like to buy that. How much do you want for it? And you say... Well, that sounds fair. And so the buyer hands you a piece of light green construction paper the size of a $10 bill. And uh, on the front of it, somebody has tried to draw with crayon Alexander Hamilton. And uh, in each corner is the number 10, and you flip it over. They didn't even try to draw the treasury building on the back, just in block letters, $10. Here you go. And you're stunned. It's like, you're joking, right? You're, you're kidding me. You're giving me this green piece of construction paper? Uh, th that's $10? Come on, get real. Now, no way you're ever going to be fooled by that. Somebody hands that to you and says, here's 10 bucks. It's like going to Walmart and handing them Monopoly money. No one's going to be fooled uh, by such an obvious, clumsy counterfeit. But here's the point. When, when false teaching shows up, we think it's going to look like the construction paper green $10 bill that somebody colored on with crayon. We assume that when false teaching shows up, it'll be super obvious that it's fake. It'll be just as obvious as that $10 green construction paper bill. But false teaching in the church doesn't show up like that. 
False teaching is like bills printed by professional counterfeiters. I've read that uh, the finest counterfeit bills come from all places of the country of Peru. 60% of all fake paper money comes from Peru. And it takes them weeks to create counterfeit currency because you have to get the weight just right. You have to get the feel just right. From what I read, they have this marvelous finishing process which is able to almost exactly create the same texture as on uh, the bills that are legitimate printed by the U.S. government. They are so good at it that most people are deceived and take it and think it's the real thing. That's what false teaching looks like in the church. It's not the green construction paper $10 bill. It is the very slick counterfeit. False teaching is clever, it's positive, it's warm, it's winsome, it is engaging. Guards are down. It's like this is the real thing. And we take it. False teachers in Paul's day, highly skilled at using all the Christian terminology that the Corinthians had heard, but they used different meanings with it. But because it was so close to the real thing, and because they weren't particularly discerning, many in the congregation were deceived. They were led into error. What does Paul say? They bring you another Jesus. They bring you another Holy Spirit, if you will. You receive that. You embrace another gospel. You put up with it. You don't really see what the difference is. You're undiscerning as it comes into the church. And so in our text, Paul has to deal with the Corinthians, the inroads, these super apostles, as Paul calls them sarcastically, who have come into the church and are making uh, some serious inroads among some of the members of the congregation. And here in the opening of, of chapter 11, indeed throughout this whole uh, section, Paul reminds us that it is Satan himself behind all false teaching in the church. Paul reminds us that if there is turmoil in the church, Satan is behind it. If there is division in a congregation, Satan is behind it. And there are three points that Paul makes in that regard. I've entitled the message this morning, Satan the Master Deceiver. We looked at the first point in detail last week. Let me just remind you of it in passing. We looked at the first six verses where we saw that Satan is always striving in a congregation to lead people away from single-minded devotion to Christ. Whatever it is that he can get people off track with, he will employ. And we notice particularly verse 3, where Paul says, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So Satan is always seeking to do that. We focused on that last week. Well, how does he attempt to do that? This is point number two, verses 7 through 12. Satan uses whatever issues he can in a local congregation. Whatever he can come up with, whatever he can lay hold of. He uses whatever issues he can to create turmoil in a congregation. Because when there's turmoil, you're not about the Great Commission anymore. When there's turmoil, the work of Christ is hindered in that community. So Satan will, do, will use whatever issue he can to create turmoil in the congregation, and if he can push it even further, as he did in Corinth, to pave the way for false teaching to take hold. What is the issue in Corinth, of all things? 
You notice it in the text. The issue that got people all stirred up was Paul not taking a salary. That was the issue. And the issue wasn't a new one. Paul had to address it in 1 Corinthians, a letter he wrote 18 months earlier. Because they were already stirred up about the fact that why aren't you taking a salary? And so Paul has to address it. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, let me just uh, point to several verses. What Paul says in verse 14, the last part of verse 14, he says, all right, God's will is, it's taught in Scripture, Paul says, that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. That is God's will. That's what God has ordained. So that's very clear. Pastors, other spiritual leaders, are to earn their income from the proclamation of the gospel. Granted, that's God's will, God's purpose. But then Paul goes on in verse 15 and says this, but I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. In other words, I didn't take a salary before. Now I'm saying this stuff, so maybe you'll get the hint, I really want a salary after all. Paul says, no, it's not what I'm doing. I made no use of it before. I'm not writing you to, to in some kind of uh, underhanded way, get you to give me a salary without me saying it. No, I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting that he doesn't take a salary. And Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 18, and he says this, wherever I go, he says, if you read the whole verse, wherever my go, I go, it is my desire, and these are his words, to present the gospel free of charge and not make use of my legitimate rights to receive a salary. And why did Paul decline a salary? It's because he was preaching a radically new message. Because what does every religion say? Here's what you have to do to get there, whatever getting there means. If you want to be right with God, here's what you have to do, the works that you have to perform, here's what you have to give, here's what you have to give up, here's all these things that you must do. And Paul says, guess what? There's a way to God and there's nothing you need to do, there's nothing you can do. It's free. Jesus paid it all. He died on the cross. He paid through his holy and precious blood for your sins. He rose again the third day. The gospel is free. Take it. If you will but receive it, there's no strings attached. Just accept the gift. And Paul says, and if I say, but I need a salary, he said, what would that have done? I'm preaching a message of free grace, and then I take payment for it. I didn't want even my legitimate right to take a salary to get in the way of this glorious message. And so Paul says, I didn't want to even have the misunderstanding of you can hear the good news as long as you pay for it. And so Paul declined a salary. Now, when Paul left an area where a congregation or congregations were established, it was a different matter. Once there was a church in place, once they had a place where they met regularly week by week, once there were elders ordained and deacons appointed and all of those things, uh, as Paul pressed on in evangelism and church planting, he accepted salary from established congregations as he pressed on into new places to evangelize for Christ. And so when he came to Corinth as a missionary, here's what he says in verse 9. He says, so when I came to Corinth, and I not only took, didn't take a salary, but he said, I had some financial needs. But guess what? The established churches supported me, just like we support missionaries as they're going out into new unreached areas. All right, the churches in Macedonia paid my salary. 
the churches in uh, Philippi, for example, uh, the church in Thessalonica, two of the well-known churches in the province of Macedonia. And so I didn't burden you in any way. I got my salary, I got my support from well-established congregations so I could come in and proclaim the gospel uh, free of charge. And you notice how Paul puts it in a rather remarkable way in verse 8. He says, I robbed other churches in order to serve you. That's kind of a striking way of putting it, isn't it? But, but he's using the imagery of an army. So an army besieges a city, captures the city, and then carries off anything of value as the army goes its way. And so Paul, to paraphrase what Paul is saying, is once I conquer an area for the gospel... Once I come with the word of God and the spirit of God, once people are converted, once people are saved, once churches are established, once I conquer an area for the cause of the gospel, I take the spoils of victory to finance my next campaign, my next military campaign, if you will, as I press on into new areas. And so Paul says, my gospel campaign in the province of Achaia, Corinth was the capital of the province of Achaia, he says, my, my evangelistic campaign in Achaia and in Corinth was financed by my previous victorious gospel campaigns to your north in the province of Macedonia. So Paul explains why he does what he does. Well, you'd think the Corinthians would have understood Paul's heart. You would think they would have appreciated that kind of sacrificial ministry, but they were upset nonetheless. Paul explained as he would. And so you notice in verse 7 what Paul says. He says, so did I somehow sin against you by humbling myself? Meaning, by not taking a salary, is that a sin? Did I somehow sin against you by humbling myself so that you might be exalted? So when I came to Corinth, I humbled myself in the sense of I didn't take a salary from any of you. But I worked among you day and night preaching Christ, leading you to faith in the Savior establishing a congregation you were exalted you were sunk in sin as the psalmist says you were in that miry clay in that pit by the grace of God you were lifted up you were lifted out of that miry clay your feet established on the rock your path of life set forth in front of you you became citizens of the kingdom of heaven you became sons and daughters of the king you inherit all things you were exalted because you came to faith in Christ I humbled myself I didn't take a salary you're now a child of the king Paul says and the fact I did it for free is a problem Are you kidding me that's what he's getting at here did I sin against you by preaching God's gospel to you free of charge and there were those in Corinth who said yep you did in the ancient world, uh, as today, uh, speaking fees are very important things. So if somebody has something worthwhile to say in the world of politics or business or academia, in the school of religion, they come to speak, there's always a speaking fee because they are somebody important and they have something worthwhile to convey. So in Paul's day, if a traveling philosopher came to Corinth, let's say, uh, or a traveling teacher of some kind came, uh, they would charge for whatever it was they were presenting. And the better known they were, the more significant of a person they were, the more they charged. Because their message was more important and they were a significant individual. Um, I was thinking, so what do you have to pay for speakers today? I looked this up. If you want Bill or Hillary Clinton to come and speak for you, um, 
don't know why you would. That, that's, that's my little... Never mind, I, 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 that slipped out. <clears throat> but anyway, um, so if you, if, you wanted, uh, if you wanted Bill or Hillary to come speak to you, their speaking fee for one time is $200,000. Because after all, you are in the presence of glorious personages. They are significant people. I mean, Bill, the President of the United States. I mean, talk about the leader of the free world some years ago. So if you want to hear him speak, and he's got words of wisdom, Hillary does too, if you want to listen to her, it's worth it to pay $200,000 because of who they are and the message that they bring. So you pay for it. I remember uh, several years ago I was asked to speak someplace, and the person inviting me said, so what's your speaking fee? I'd never had that question before. And I was kind of taken aback, and I said, well, I, I don't have a speaking fee. Um, if, if you want me to come, I'll be glad to come. If you want to give me something, that's fine. If you don't, that's fine. But no, I've never thought about, about having a speaking fee for something. But, but these false teachers, when they came to Corinth, they were eager to take a salary because they said, we're the real apostles. So in other words, we're important. There's Paul, this imposter, this would-be apostle. But we're the real thing. And we bring to you the real gospel. And so because of who we are and the value of the message that we bring, we receive pay for it because it shows our importance and it shows the significance of the message. And by Paul not taking a salary, wake up you Corinthians, what does it show you? He's not really important at all. He's not really an apostle. Paul realizes that his teaching is worthless. He gives his message away for free because nobody would ever pay for it, is what they say to the Corinthians. Now, we receive a salary, as you Corinthians know. And you got to realize, you get what you pay for. That's the approach. And more than that, if you notice here in our text, reading between the lines... Paul not taking a salary means he really doesn't care about any of you at all. He just comes and goes, no attachment, he doesn't care. Paul has no love for any of you in his heart, is what these false apostles were saying, if you read between the lines. Well, how do you answer that? Uh, what does Paul say? All he can say in verse 11 is, when it comes to loving all of you, God knows. God knows I do. I mean, that's all I can say, Paul says. And then he goes on in verse 12 and says, and what I am doing, namely not taking a salary, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms we do. We don't work on the same terms. And by my not taking a salary, that's a yet another distinction. I want you to see the difference between me and them. Paul says. And so I'm not going to take a salary because I want to do everything I can to undermine their claims. So I'm going to decline payment. They are not my equals in ministry and I'm going to illustrate that. And so what does Satan use in Corinth? He uses the issue of salary, not exactly a fundamental of the faith, to create division in the church and to undermine the work of the gospel. All right, so what's a contemporary illustration? As I thought about this, what about in our day? And ex the, the example that came immediately to mind is from the last couple of years having to do with the COVID-19 pandemic. We all became aware of it in our country in uh, January of 2020. 
And as you know, over the next um, several months beyond that and into the next year and so on, what we heard about all the time were things like masks and quarantines and social distancing and shutdowns and lockdowns and travel bans and vaccines. And it was amazing to me to see how those issues negatively impacted a whole wide range of congregations. I heard this directly from pastors in our own synod. I heard this from clergy in other denominations. Let me just give you a couple examples. So when it came to the coronavirus, the vaccine, oh, there was a divisive spirit among Christians. On the one hand, those, there were those who said, if you get the vax, you are foolish, you are gullible. Uh, even some to the extreme of, you know, they're putting microchips in it so the government can track you, that kind of crazy talk. And then there were others who said, if you don't get the vax, you're a science denier. And your decision puts everybody in danger and you want grandma to die. And so there was a division in the con yes, even in ours, there was a division on what about the vax, this way or that way? How easy it is for something secondary to all of a sudden become all-consuming. You think about masks, talk about divisive. Uh, in talking to pastors in our Lutheran brethren, this was a lose-lose for them as well as it was for us here. Many churches tried to do the same thing that we did, try to take a middle-of-the-road, reasonable approach. So what we did, among other things, we spaced out the seating. Those of you that are new, our chairs never used to be six feet apart. Uh, they are. We've never. So maybe some Sunday you'll come and we'll have moved them all back to where they once were. It's like, how come it's so crowded? Well, we spaced them out back in 2020. We've never moved them back since then. But we spaced out the chairs. Uh, we quit taking the offering so the basket isn't passed. So there's, if there's anything to be passed on, nobody would catch it. We sanitized the door handles. Um, all those kinds of things. Taking what we thought were wise precautions. And we thought about what do we do about masks. And so we decided we'd make them optional. So, if you want to wear one, we encourage you to do it. If you don't want to wear one, that's quite all right. And so we had hand sanitizer in the lobby, if you remember. We had masks on a table out there in the lobby. And what was the response? For some, if you don't mandate masks, I'm not coming. And maybe I'll be mad enough to leave the church altogether. And then on the other hand, if you even make masks optional, you're giving credence to these government assertion that masks work. It's just one big government hoax. I'm not going to attend a church like that that even gives credence to that kind of thing. Let me say it again. Satan will use whatever issue he can to undermine churches to hinder the work of the gospel in paul's day it was salary several years ago it was masks and vaccines and coronavirus he will use whatever he can to undermine a congregation and get us off track from being focused on christ i don't know what the next thing will be that he'll come up with but he'll find something and so this is the principle that is in our text be on guard we need to be on guard as believers to not let non-vital issues consume us and take center stage and then marginalize others who may disagree with us one way or another on these sorts of things well that leads me then to my to my third and final point and this is in the last three verses of the text is satan does some of his best work as an angel of light Verses 13, 14, and 15. What does Peter tell us about Satan? Peter says, Satan, as a roaring lion, walks about 
seeking whom he may devour. That's the reality of who he is. That's the analogy. But what does Paul remind us of here? Satan doesn't show up as the lion he actually is. He comes as something sweetness, light, positive, warmth, those kinds of things. He's still the devouring lion, but he comes as an angel of light. Uh, Dr. R. Kent Hughes, who for many years was a pastor at uh, Wheaton College Church, in his little study on this passage, he writes this. He says, when Satan is at work, we never smell sulfur or glance down at a cloven hoof. Rather, he is sweetness and a congenial, smiling light until he has control. The false teachers in Paul's day preached about Jesus all the time. They spoke about the gospel all the time. They talked about the Holy Spirit all the time. They used the same terminology, words, but they meant something different by them. You think about in our day, just in society at large, how words have taken on different meanings. How words and their definition have become twisted. I was reminded of something in uh, the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. He talks about uh, as um, Screwtape is training his young nephew Wormwood in how to be a good demon. Uh, has him kind of under his wing training him. That's the story. He tells him there's a philological arm in hell. By that he means there's a language department in hell that works very hard to confuse words and to twist them to make them say something different than what people assume they were. He wrote that in the 1940s. Imagine what he'd say today about how words are twisted. I'm thinking of one of the words Josh McDowell, uh, the great uh, apologist, uh, talks about this. He, uh, he talks about the word tolerance. And he talks about the definition of the word that my generation, older, we all grew up with. That, that tolerance was a positive dictionary word. And here's the old definition of the word tolerance. The dictionary defines the verb to tolerate this way. A couple definitions. To recognize and respect others' beliefs, practices, etc. without sharing them. And number two, to bear or put up with someone or something not especially liked. For many, many centuries, that was the definition of tolerance. Putting up with things you disagree with and you don't like. But just as you want you to be allowed to be free and express your views, so you allow others, even if you may speak against it and totally be opposed to it and make that opposition known. Tolerance, we grew up being taught, was a good thing. It was something to be prized. It was an American virtue. But Josh McDowell says the same word is used, but it means now something very different. Uh, he calls it the new tolerance. What does tolerance mean today? You, you hear this on the news, you hear it on social media. Tolerance has been twisted to mean accepting another person's beliefs and practices as valid, whatever they are. We need to be accepting, we are told. We need to be affirming of each person because a person's dignity and self-worth depends on everybody else endorsing their personal truth. And so each person has the right to embrace his or her own lifestyle, 
establish his or her own morality, live the way that they want to, whatever it may be, and that system of life, that belief system, must never be questioned, must never be criticized, must never be judged, and if somebody says, you know what, that's wrong, or the other thing, that's wrong over here, that person has to be shut down. That person has to be marginalized. That person has to be silenced. Why? Because you are intolerant, meaning you haven't embraced and said, this is great, whatever you're doing, that's not me, but good for you, this is wonderful. Because that isn't your response, then you are regarded as bigoted, dangerous, intolerant, must be silenced. And so in our culture, the word tolerance has become, we use the same vocabulary word, but now it means somebody who is enlightened, somebody who embraces those oily words, fairness or equity. A tolerant person wants to be sure each person has a standing and an affirmation and a voice. And it all sounds so right. It all sounds so good, but it is deceptive and it is utterly destructive. And as Paul reminds us in this passage, Satan is a master of taking that which is dangerous, evil, destructive, poisonous, whatever words you want to use, and makes it appear normal, harmless, winsome, and positive. Whether it is in the realm of society or the realm of religion. Satan does his best work as an angel of light. I read an interesting story by uh, Charles Swindoll. And the story began with this line. He says, a friend of mine ate dog food one evening. And so I had to keep reading to see what his story was. And so, as Swindoll tells the story, the setting was an elegant uh, student reception at uh, a physician's home near Miami, Florida. And uh, the hostess, Swindoll knew the student who was being honored, but he also knew the hostess who was holding this party. And uh, she had just graduated from a gourmet uh, cooking course and decided to put her skills to the ultimate test. So what she did, Swindoll says, she had these beautiful, delicate crackers. She put uh, a piece of dog food on each one. And then there was a wedge of imported cheese. And there were bacon chips sprinkled on it. There was an olive. There was a little slice of pimento on top. And she served them on sterling silver platters. And then she watched them disappear. In fact, Swindoll said his friend kept coming back for more. And then he ends the story by saying this, once he found out what they were, he probably felt like barking at her and biting her in the leg. <laughs> well, well here, here's the analogy to what transpires in the world of religion. False teachers market dog food. But they serve it on silver platters, sterling silver platters. They doctor it up to hide what it really is. And they make it as presentable and as tasty, if you will, as possible. But no matter the presentation, no matter what you do to try to doctor it up, it is still dog food. That's false teaching in the church. That's how it gets in. That's how it's marketed. That's how it's presented. Let me close with these words from, again, from C.S. Lewis from the Screwtape Letters. Uh, at the end of letter chapter uh, 12, as uh, Screwtape, again, is giving counsel to his young nephew, Wormwood, the devil in training. 
He says to Wormwood, as you're working to tempt human beings and lead them astray, you don't just hit them square on with error. Here's what you do. He says, Screwtape says, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. How wise C.S. Lewis was. That's what Satan does, his best work as an angel of light. How you and I in our day need a spirit of discernment. How we need to watch and to pray. How we need to be increasingly grounded in the word. I, I, I trust that as this fall opens up, there's a new women's study available. There's our men's study. There is Sunday school. There are all kinds of opportunities we need to be increasingly grounded in the word in these days. We need to be increasingly discerning about what's going on. And so my prayer for each one of us in this congregation is that Satan will not get us aside by secondary and, and incidental things, that we can agree to disagree on things that ultimately don't matter in the big scheme of things, but that we would have discernment, that we would discern the counterfeit bill as it were that we'd discern the dog food on the cracker, as it were. That we'd have a spirit of discernment to, to know no matter how it's doctored up, no matter how it's packaged, no matter how presentable it is, to have biblical discernment to know what is truth and what is error in our days. And then to be grounded in God's word and stay firm in that. And so may God uh, grant that that be true for each one of us and for our congregation. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, we live in a day of deception, just as it was in Paul's day. He speaks about his opponents as being false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Uh, Lord, false teaching hasn't uh, changed its approach over 2,000 years. Uh, Lord, but we pray that for each one of us here, that you'd give us discernment, not that we drum up from our own uh, wellspring of knowledge, but discernment from your word that we would be grounded in that truth and that we would be equipped to stand and to see what's going on. And Lord, to have the courage to say when there are things going on in life and society, this is wrong, this is what the Bible says, this is what's right. Lord, give us that kind of courage, of conviction based upon your word. And Lord, we pray that as we enter this fall season, you'd keep Satan from gaining a foothold. Uh, in any way in the life of our congregation. We can never rest content or complacent because Satan is a roaring lion appearing as an angel of light. So keep us vigilant, keep us strong, keep us united, keep us focusing on what matters, and keep us evangelizing and reaching people for Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name.